All right, Drew Enns, I'm so glad to, to have you join me on podcast, um, Plain Spoken. I, I've done a number of interviews. I have not done one yet with um, a person of your demographic. Let's just see if we see you the same way in this. I would say that uh, you're a liberal, that you've played the role of um, an activist in, in the United Methodist Church, helping to highlight what you see as an unjust um, structure and theology and providing yourself as um, uh, a crash test dummy or something to, 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 to potentially get hurt for the advancement of a cause that, that um, would very much be in line with liberal principles. Would you see yourself in that same way? I would say, and, and I know I have many, many friends who over the last three and a half years, we've had this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really genuinely mean this. Mm-hmm. Um, I see myself as a pastor who had two people that said, we want to get married. Mm-hmm. And they said, we want our pastor to marry us. And there was a lot of prayer, a lot of conversation, a lot of conversation with supervisors and others. Um, and so I, I think the only thing I would push back about is I didn't do this to make to make a stand or to to promote a cause. I I really did this under a lot of prayer, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of uh, discernment, mm-hmm. and just came to the place of if I said no, I wasn't being true to who God called me to be, and mm-hmm. and I know with that is a is an action as well, right? It it is the well, you're standing for a cause you're violating the book of discipline um but that wasn't the intention was not the the intention was not to break the book of discipline let's find someone to do this and make sure it really was an ask a lot of discernment so and the decision. the thing i think i just heard was this was not a manufactured thing these were real people a real event um right. that that just so happens to have been a touchstone for uh, one chapter in the larger drama of the UMC. Um, so let's let's um, part of what I'm all about is understanding that issues are complicated. Not um, too many people who say things are complicated and gray kind of lead to the place of well, who knows what's right and wrong. I still believe in a black and white. I still believe in a right and wrong, but I believe that. Um, Getting to that place requires a lot of discernment uh, and and energy for nuance and understanding. So what you've already introduced here is um, that real people are involved, that there are pastoral principles at play, um, and that people who do what you've done are not um, conniving uh, with bad intentions, but this this is a real issue of of conscience for you. So where where I suspect you and I will go is kind of looking at the different values. That nav that that animate people like you and me as we we look at these different situations. So before we get into that and um, the the negotiation of of of, of all that, um, I want to humanize you. You are a human, but it's real easy to just see you as when when someone doesn't know things about you, they don't necessarily um, infer. Hey, this is uh, a man who who bleeds, who cries, who uh, loves his family. Who, who may or may not love his country, who may or may not love his job, who carries a lot of the same anxieties and, and passions that, that other people do. 
So um, if, if um, before we take a sketch of you, I did want to go ahead and say why it is that we're we're talking, and that's because I reported on you in the context of uh, Bishop Sharma Lewis has brought up on charges two female clergy in Mississippi for marrying two persons who who claim the 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 sexual identity gender identity of, of non-binary. Um, and she previously came from your annual conference in Virginia, where you performed a gay wedding for two males um, in a college that you had known in a, a college setting, I think. Well, we can get more clear on that in a minute. Um, but that uh, she brought you up on charges and then just kind of left you hanging, even though the Book of Discipline says that everything has to take place within, I think, 120 days. It was some stated amount of time. She just left you hanging. And that intersects with themes in my own reporting where I'm, I'm of the mind that um, the system that the United Methodist Church has designed does not promote justice. And even if it's designed to do so, people in charge um, capriciously choose what parts of it they're going to observe and, and not to, to fit their own agendas. And I've, I've mo- mainly reported on that in the Western jurisdiction in cases that seem quite obvious to me around Bishop Carcano or Bishop Oliveto, both um, um, uh, being involved in their own processes that haven't been seen through with uh, honesty and transparency. Um, But in your case as well, even though I would be on the polar opposite ideologically from you on um, sexual ethics and the the nature of identity with respect to sexuality, you and I are of the same mind that what happened with you within the bureaucratic – processes of the United Methodist Church is not as it should have been, and there was an unjustness to that. And so I wanted to to bring you into that reporting that I did, and in the midst of that reporting, I got most of my details right, but one of the details I got wrong that um, you graciously corrected was that uh, I said that you'd been brought up on charges before and that the charges pertaining to the gay wedding uh, were a second charge on top of uh, investigation that was already happening, and that wasn't true at all. You had not been brought up on any charges what I think confused me was, as you were going through the process, um, you, immediately a second charge for the same offense was brought to you. And then I think some of your language in your article on hacking Christianity indicated that more people tried to bring charges against you in that interim period um, as well. And so I just my timeline got messed up. But anyway, you were polite in correcting me, and thank you for correcting me. Um, so we we can come back to the story, but let's let's hear about who you are. Let's spend five minutes on just you know uh, helping people to understand you're you're a person who who has loves and passions and anxieties and concerns. What what is it that makes Drew ends Drew ends? Oh, five minutes. Um, I think the biggest thing is I'm a, I'm a pastor in the United Methodist Church. I have family, uh, four kids. And a spouse that I deeply love and who just does amazing work. I a spouse of the I, opposite sex. She's yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> she identifies as, as female. So, um, and um, yeah, and and really wanting very much to to do the right things and to love my people. I think like any pastor does, right? Like to really deeply care about people, to help them know who Jesus is, the mm-hmm. transformative power that comes with a relationship with Christ. And I mean, all those things. So, I mean, I think that's a little bit about me. I, the the part that I think is a little bit different is being under complaint for 
over 1300 days at this mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that has really, that's, that's a different aspect that I never thought about in seminary was what it might look like to be under, under complaint. And in some ways to, as you very eloquently described in your beginning is almost become a caricature of myself, right? I'm not a real person to most people. Yeah, you definitely stand as a certain functionary um, within this whole uh, setting, as as many people do. You know, as Absolutely. as well, and it, increasingly, I've kind of signed myself up for that as well. I'm I'm fully aware that if I do have con conversations of consequence, or if my uh, uh, public speech results in anything being different, that people are going to look at me and caricature me as well. You know, so there there has to be and. I didn't hear you say this, but I, you let Bishop Lewis know before you performed the ceremony that you were going to perform the ceremony, and then after you performed the ceremony, you also let her know that you had done it. You know, so you knew. I watched an interview you did with uh, I think it's like Virginians for Change or something like that, and uh, I watched that last night. And you knew that there would be consequences for actions on the other side of this. You knew what the the Book of Discipline said, so it it was not a manufactured thing that took place. However, once you participated in it, you knew that you would become an avatar uh, for something. Um, as as uh, crude as that can be, that's something that you signed up for. And then you've been willing to do interviews since then. Um, uh, what I would infer from that is out of a hope that others will humanize you and see that the people who do these things are not nasty, evil, conniving people with bad intentions, but people who have a heart for others. Um, and that's why I hear you at this point saying, I'm first and foremost a pastor. I have pastoral concerns. I want to love and care for people. Um, did I, would that all fit how you understand yourself to be? Yeah. And I mean, it's not PR spin. I mean, that really is mm -hmm. who I am. And, and I would also just put out there too, you know, at the beginning, we didn't do any interviews. We didn't do all those things, but it really was the concern around silence and confidentiality. When you say and we, who's we? So when this happens, yeah. typically there's an advocate that comes in. We have a defense team that works with us to make sure we know the book of discipline. We understand the process. That's that from the out. denomination. The denomination sends you people. The, the conference sends you people. The majority of people were from Virginia. So again an advocate some other individuals we had conversations with others um we did not we had somebody help us um again from a process standpoint but the rest of it was all here in virginia well so I wait mean, i'm trying to figure out if there was an official denominational process that assigned you an advocate and someone to lead you through or if this was like um reconciling ministries network or some other like coalition that is not part of the umc structure that is gathered around you no it's all um denominational but within virginia so okay. an advocate is just an elder and full connection okay and in virginia and i chose one and okay uh, so and, and so when you're saying we made these decisions we didn't do interviews at first you're talking about an advocate that was assigned to you from the annual conference as well as some other uh, functionaries within the UMC structure that have been designed to walk you through this process, designated to walk you through this process. Right. And they're not okay. assigned. They're chosen by me as okay. a respondent. Okay. So they weren't chosen by the conference. They said, you have this option of assembling this team with representatives from our annual conference. 
pick and choose who you like, and you, you chose your dream team. Right. And when you get together, you say, hey, dream team, here, here's what we're going to do. And they say, ah, okay, we're, we're going to do interviews. We're not going to do interviews. Here's, here's the right step. Uh, and they've been doing this for, you said, 15,000 days, 1,500 days, 1,500 days? 13. 1,300 days. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and it always was my choice, right? Like, I mean, everyone said it's up to you. Mm-hmm. And I just remember, I mean, from a leadership standpoint, interviews back someone into a corner. And they're embarrassing. Interviews right? are? I think so. I think when you go public with your information, it it puts out a story instead of, I mean, I think that's why Jesus said when you do, when you work through conflict, go to the person first, mm-hmm. right? Don't go to everyone because once you get more people involved, then it's harder sometimes to really figure things out. I mean, if if I have a problem with you, I can go and have a conversation with you and we probably could hash it out. Versus going to news outlets and others, and especially early on, we were, you know, again, I, I say we, but it's it's ultimately my choice. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I want to really work out something. Um, well, yeah, and that, uh, w- let's put a pin in that because I do want to talk about, one of the things you pushed back on was the the first person who filed the complaint against you was a friend, and the way I portrayed that was um, a manipulation of the system so that you could easily reach a just resolution without any punishment really coming upon you, and you, you said that's really not how it was, so I want to come back to that. Uh, <laughs> before that, I want to circle back around uh, to who you are, and let me just cover basic things that, that make it easier for me to identify with you. Um, how old are you, Drew? 38. You're 30. So am I. That's crazy. Um, so you, you graduated high school in 2003? That's right. Where'd you go to high school? An all-boys Catholic high school, Calvert Hall College. No, that's crazy. <laughs> so you um, did, they, did they walk you through a Roman Catholic catechism or anything? Did they catechize you at all? Oh, I mean, well, I mean, I had to go through religion classes yeah. and that, but I was the head of the student ministry program there as the United Methodist. So you grew up where you uh, cradled United Methodist grew up in the, okay. Yep. So you, United Methodist. you grew up same experience as me in uh, going to youth group every week, going to summer camp every summer. Um, yep. So, so uh, one of the things that I'll hopefully remember to return to is what makes one a United Methodist. Um, someone like me would say, it would be assent to our doctrines and discipline. But someone like you might say, well, no, the, it's not just that. It's it's um, having lived within the United Methodist Church for some time and being formed by the United Methodist Church. Um, so we'll see if we come back around to that, because I, I think there's a robust conversation to have around that too. So you went to, to high school at a Roman Catholic all-boys high school where they were tolerant of uh, a Protestant like you, and you were actually given a leadership capacity in the religious life of that school. You graduated in 03. Did you go directly to undergrad? Well, I, I want to tell a quick story about that. Yeah, please. Yeah. The, the, there's a funny story. So I was the head, again, of what they call the Lasallian Youth. And uh, as a Methodist, um, and so one day they go, hey, we needed you to go pick up the sacramentary. And I'm like, oh. So, you know, being a 17-year-old kid, you're like, okay, I guess I can figure out what that is. Yeah. You know, sacrament. So I open up the tabernacle and look in. I'm like, oh, I can't. I don't know what's in here. So I go back. I go, I don't know what sacramentary is. And they go, 
oh, it's the book. And I said, oh, I went in the tabernacle. And so they they presented me with a uh, with a $25,000 addition uh, tuition as a fake bill. And said we had to clean it because a Protestant went into the tabernacle. <laughs> um, but I mean, everyone was super kind. And For and, the Protestants <laughs> watching, tabernacle is not uh, akin to the no. Old Testament tabernacle. It's it's a right. it's a little box on the wall where they keep the uh, the the host. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The 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 bread um, for the well, it's not bread. It's wafers, little cardboard wafers. So anyway, he went into a, a very holy place as a Protestant, and then the joke was that you had, uh, uh, had tarnished it. it and they had to purify yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. fun. Yeah, there's uh, Roman Catholicism. I, I had somebody writing me yesterday saying, "Hey, I think they're Christians. What do you think?" And so that's that's a whole other. We're probably not going to get into that, but um, that's that that is a good cultural experience, religious experience to have. I would think. And then, did you go to a, a religious undergraduate institution? I didn't. Uh, I went to Virginia Tech. Okay, and you got a degree in sociology, a uh, undergrad, uh, or with a concentration in crime and deviant behavior. Ooh. Okay. Okay. Which really helped with student ministry. Sure. Yeah. So you graduated in 07 with your degree in? With six. Well, good for you, man. Um, and then did you go directly? I was an yes, it sounds like it. Did you go directly into seminary from there? No, I went and uh, did student ministry for eight years. Okay. And then last three went to seminary full time. And what seminary did, did you attend? Eastern Mennonite in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Okay. Okay. And then did you have an emphasis in your MDiv? I did not. No. Okay. What what classes did you particularly enjoy in seminary or what subjects? Oh, this is the, so this should not be that surprising, but I think the ones that really um spoke to me was preaching, pastoral care. Mm -hmm. Um lots of spiritual direction, but one of the classes that was most meaningful was Christianity through the eyes of the American outsider. And that class was all about at various points in time during our history, who was considered less than by the church as a whole. And okay. so reading, you know, those kinds of documents to be able to, to share, you know, what they saw, you know, about Christianity and Methodism and such um, was really eye opening. And I think that that's one of the interesting things that I took from seminary was Sometimes, as, and you've done a really great job of not allowing me to use in language, right? Like things I <laughs> I know what they mean mm -hmm. and you know what they mean, but others may not. Right. Because sometimes the in-group knows what all the rules are. They right. know the ways to do things. They know, you know, in churches, um, and this is super stereotypical. I know it's not really real, but, you know, what kind of green beans we use in the, in the potluck dinner and what we don't, you sure. know, those kinds yeah. of things. But then the outsiders have to learn all those rules. And right. so sometimes they can be a good reflection of, well, is this really what you want to be? And mm -hmm. is this really who you are? And so going back all the way pre-revolution, all the way through to current times, um, it's a really interesting class. Yeah, I, I could imagine really enjoying that class as well. Um, and of course, where we stand at our, our place in the United Methodist Church is partly uh, both both sides and everybody in between being very concerned about our public witness and how outsiders would see us. And of course, the we are not the, the monolithic church with a capital C. We're just one of many denominations in the American right. Christian landscape. We are not 
the hegemonic um, force of, of good that we originally set out trying to be, making big public statements that all of the, the newspapers were just waiting on pins and needles to report on, uh, we're, we're increasingly just kind of a backwater sect, um, even if we see ourselves as big and important in the American religious landscape, we're, we're just not as influential as we once were or think perhaps we should be. But a big part of um, our concern for public witness is how do outsiders see us? What do they perceive whenever they read about us in the paper or they see the, uh, the ministries of a local church in their town with the cross and flame on it? Um, so the, the place I wanted to end our conversation today was talking about the denomination as a whole and, and what you think should happen and all that. We'll see if we, we get there. But um, just to, to, to wrap up the section on you personally, you got out of undergrad. Did, when you got out of undergrad, did you know that you were going to go into campus ministry, or is that something that just kind of happened? So I've always had a heart for younger people, right? Middle school, high school, college students, young adults. Yeah. Um, I was an associate pastor for two years, and my job was to work with youth and young adults. Where were you and an associate I, pastor? I'm sorry? Where were you an associate? Uh, Smithfield, Virginia. So if you enjoyed In a Bay United Band, Methodist Church? Yeah. United okay. Methodist. Okay, so I'm just, that was uh, my first appointment. So you were you were in the candidacy process in undergrad? No, I was not. W- when did I, you begin as a candidate? Twenty. Mm. Was it before or after sure. you became a campus minister, part of a campus ministry? I was before I took my position here. No, you said you did campus ministry for eight years before seminary, right? Oh, student ministry. Yeah. Student ministry, excuse me. So you, no, no, it's okay. Um, So I was a candidate during that time before I went to seminary. Okay. So you, but you took, you were part of student ministry right out of sem or right out of undergrad. I got that right. And then were you a candidate? Did you become a candidate while you were in student ministry or before? Uh, During. During. Okay. And then you became an associate pastor. Also After during graduate. student, okay, 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 and so this was uh, you always wanted to care for young people, minister to young people, yep. and uh, as you went on that, you 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 were able to go to seminary and study more about that and come up with your theological framework for how to do that, and then that's of course what um, gave you such clarity about standing against the stance of the institution in order to care for the individuals that came to you for care in in the way that you did. Yeah, again, a pastoral focus more yeah. than you know, making a stand. But yeah, I mean, I think that that was really, really intentional and really meaningful. Yeah. So um, the knowing that that you're a person who cares for other people, I guess uh, let's go ahead and, and see how we do with hitting a, in a place where liberals and conservatives see, see things very differently. Because, of course, conservatives care about other people as well. You know, they're not Absolutely. sociopaths, you know, and and we all love and we all want the good of the other. You know, St. Augustine said to love is to will the good of the other. But we do seem to have very different ideas of what is good for people uh, generally. So conservatives would um, say that what you did was not loving because it participates in a view of self that is actually um, defacing the image of God in them and warping uh, uh, love. Um, so something that I think a conservative would generally be interested in hearing from a person who sees things the way that you do is, do you believe 
that there is anything an individual can desire that is not good for them? Or do you believe that that pretty much whatever an individual genuinely yearns for is good for them and should be blessed and given to them uh, by a pastor? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are things. Of course, there are things that, that mm-hmm. do harm. Uh, to an individual and even if they desire them very very earnestly yeah. very very yeah. okay so 100% so how how do you navigate as a pastor would you agree that we have to navigate for people what to some degree is good for them and what is not saying i can and will and be happy to bless this i can't and won't and would not be happy to bless this that that that's part of our job as as representatives of Christ and as people of conscience we do at times have to say, no, I, I hear you wanting me to bless this, but I, I can't and I won't, and I'm actually going to warn you against it. That You no, would say that absolutely. that is... Okay, okay. Oh, and as a campus minister, right? I have to do that at times, right? It's not loving or caring, and I won't get into specific like examples, but there are times when students come and say, hey, you know, what about this? Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, I'm again, I love you no matter what, but I really don't think that this is in your best interest in, in a loving way. Right. But there's the relationship there. There's, you know, there's trust, there's all those things. So mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so, and we don't have time to get into the nitty gritty on this, but I am interested in the initial response of how is it that you have clarity that some things that individuals desire are wrong, not good for them. You can't bless, but that something that the scriptures warn against as bad for them is actually good and can and should be blessed by the church. How, what, what process did you go through to arrive at the historic position of the church on sexual identity and exercise? Actually, I, I don't think the scriptures speak to identity, and I want to back off from that. I, I think the scriptures only speak to sexual behavior. What, what gave you clarity about, was it just personal feeling, it just doesn't feel evil to me, or was it something more than that? Yeah, um... I think that there is a couple of things, right? I, I would, I would say that there have been times and ways in which I understand scripture that we have taken biblical truths and said, you know, this is one way in which we understood because it was a different time at at this point. Mm -hmm. And we, we, I'm a very much inspired by the Holy spirit, not an errant, uh, understanding of God, which means that everything is without error right. we, for the end, uh, until the end of the time. Inspired is, you know, the Holy Spirit inspired people to write, this is the word of God, um, but it's up to us to kind of contextualize. And we've done that for a variety of things. And I, I won't get into the gotcha, you know, passages, you know, of like, oh, well, what about, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. What about right. shellfish? We're eating shell, right. yeah, that, we, that, we all that know that one, yeah. Well, we, don't, we don't need to go there, right? Like, uh-huh. like, yeah. I... I think for me, this particular um, concern of mm-hmm. people, um, I, I just look also at the meta narrative of scripture, right? Mm-hmm. God started very exclusive, right? With one family and went from continuously when people said, well, this group is not a part of this. Well, then we have this beautiful passage in numbers of what well, the foreigners can't can't worship. No, let the foreigners come, mm-hmm. right? And, and every time in scripture that there's been some space where someone's like, well, yeah, but not this group, mm-hmm. God has opened it up. And again, I think there's a difference for me between behavior um, and identity. And I think that's really where it's going to come down to, right? Is mm-hmm. I would 
might push back and say, you know, I don't think that this is a choice. Um, I believe that God created people mm-hmm. in this way. Mm-hmm. And just like, you know, Peter and Cornelius, how, how can I say that something God has created is, is, um, is wrong, is, is defiled. Um, yeah. Do not call unclean what God. I have made clean. Exactly. And so and I think it's... that this is very much God has created people to be like this. And so we've done great harm. So let not... me let me put something to you that I've been saying out loud, and I haven't had anyone correct me on it yet. Go for it. But I believe that the fundamental difference between left and right in the United Methodist Church, one that cannot be bridged, and there can be no cooperation between the two, are those who profess the doctrine of the fall and those who don't. Um, the fall being that we are not born as perfect representatives of of God's divine image, but that every facet of us is marked by sin and a, a death and rebirth is required to make us right with God. Versus, uh, we are born with you know some flaws, but generally we're made in God's image, and we don't need to die and be reborn or have this hatred of sin, of indwelling sin, and of self and and die to self and 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 have Christ live in us. We that's that's not helpful. That's not healthy. Uh, the what the church needs to offer is the innate goodness of creation and of individuals. And we need to to bring out the good by blessing the good. And and love, committed love, is a good. And so the the job of the church is to affirm, not to do this. Uh, you're born in sin, you need to hate your sin, you need to hate yourself, you need to turn, uh, otherwise you'll be damned in hell. You know, that's that's the doctrine of the fall. Rather, we don't think that doctrine's he- healthy, helpful, and and we, we really stand against that, and we have a very different disposition to individuals that are, that are um, I, think, I think a person like you would say, uh, seen as less than by the church, conservatives would say people who participate in actions that that deface the image of God in them. So, as I as I put that to you, that the the primary division is on whether or not we confess the doctrine of the fall. Do you think that that actually fits um, with what we're dealing with in the United Methodist Church, or do you think I've misdiagnosed the area of disagreement? I I mean I think that's a piece of it. I think. Um... Our eschatology also is a piece of it, right? You name that as well. So eschatology, um, for anyone watching, is uh, our doctrine of how we think this is all going to come to an end, if at all, if we are right. currently in the millennial reign of Christ. It, read Revelation about... Um, uh, there's also Second Thessalonians. The, the day of the Lord, when it comes, how's it going to come? How's it going to work? How's it going to impact all of us? That, that whole family of questions is under eschatology. Sorry, go ahead, yep. Drew. Nope, that's good. I was, I was about to explain it, so you did. Oh, my bad. <laughs> I took it from you. you Go ahead. I was yeah. Um, but I do think that, that that has a piece of it as well. I And again, I, I am not. Well, a connect Wesley. those dots for me. I didn't I, I don't see that yet, but uh, you'll you'll help me. Yeah. Well, and, and I think. Well, and let me go back to the whole idea of fall. And, and I'm not a Wesleyan scholar. Right. Like I you probably are much more read than I am, but my understanding of Wesley's, John Wesley's understanding of original sin is left to our own devices, we will, we will fail. We will, we will indulge in evil. We will do wrong things, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that is true, right? Like I'm, yes, right? Like I, I see it in my own life. It's, I, 
I'm a dad. I see it in my kids, right? So are- in the articles of religion, I think this is helpful. The articles of religion, it's articles seven and eight that deal with the fall of man. Um, the, the, the phrase I'm able to recall from memory is that our hearts are, in, are inclined towards evil and that continually without the, uh, and then from there it's, it's without the being born again or the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So right. that, that falls within a classical definition of the depravity of man. Um, we, we, we put a little bit more on that term nowadays than is helpful, but generally John Wesley and the early people called Methodists definitely did confess that we are born in a, a depraved state where we cannot be made right with God until he preventingly, preveniently reaches out to us with his grace and calls us to righteousness. Um, I don't know if that was helpful at all, but I, I, I hope it was. <laughs> go, go ahead. Yeah. Well, and I, and I just think in general, right, like, I, I tend to think that we, like, I, I think there has to be a middle ground from what you described, right? Like, there has to be a middle ground. And, and I think there is, right? Like, I would say, again, just from study, from, from lived experience, you know, all the, all the Western quadrilateral things from scripture, that there are redeeming things. And maybe not that Yes, that that happens, but then God immediately, I mean, that's why we celebrate infant baptism is this prevenient grace. It's a sign of prevenient grace that uh, God is inviting us and wooing us uh, immediately into. And so I do think that there's that piece of it, right? And then I, I do think that a part of what we're talking about as well is that the way in which we see things end, our eschatology, deeply determines how we do mission and how we view mission in the world. So as right? you refer to eschatology, are you are you referring to how it is that God's judgment actually works? Like who's actually under condemnation and not? Is that the family of ideas you're talking about? Or Because I'm still not connecting eschatology with the question of the fall. Um, yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think it is about the way in which God will judge the world. Okay. Uh, what that looks like. And I think that that is a key piece of this conversation and what love looks like, right? So for example, if you say, I I won't say you, but if someone says, hey, I'm really worried because I think every, I've been taught, I've been, I've been conditioned. I've been, um, my experience and my understanding and my belief is that those who do not declare Jesus as Lord and Savior mm-hmm. are all going to burn in hell. Yeah. The most loving thing for me to do mm-hmm. is to is to make sure that people know that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. On the other hand, if you're saying, you know, part of it is, yes, there is a judgment. Yes, there are, um, there is, uh, there is this moment at the end times, but but God is going to be more understanding. God is going to be more um, that that Christ's love comes, that there's these multitude from all nations, that God understands that maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian household, right? Like, I mean, all these things, then our job, is, then love looks differently in those moments mm-hmm. and to certain people. And I'm not saying, you know, we're, we're paying huge, Broad strokes, right? Well, I think we have to do this. I think I think we inherit this huge tradition with all these particularities, and we have to navigate these waters and come. I mean, the rubber hits the road. It, the rubber hit the road for you in a big way, and that's why we're talking. The rubber hit, hits the road for me 
and you in, in, in a big way every day as we make pastoral decisions. So I, I think it's very helpful to make generalizations and paint with a broad brush, knowing that there's going to be nuance in there. So please don't be insecure about okay. that at all. Keep going. Well, and I, and I, again, I just sit back and go, well, when we do harm to people, mm-hmm. Jesus is very clear. You know, if you, if you make one of these little ones go away from me, yeah. it's bare for a millstone to be hung around your neck. Right. Right. And so, well, what if does you, if you cause like? them to stumble, yeah. If you, if you right. cause one of these, the question is the little one are, is the little one people outside of Christ's family, the church who are looking in and are we potentially scaring them off? I think that's how you would interpret it versus my my interpretation would be people who are neophytes in the faith and don't really understand things very well. And are we making things unnecessarily difficult to people that are trying to follow Jesus and then just intimidating them out of the church? So much there's there are whole families of theological interpretation here. And um, so so let me put to you another um classically conservative understanding of of what liberalism is and see how much you think that that shoe fits. And it's not at all, um, I'll try and give it in a way that's not like, my spirit isn't mean as I do it, but you'll remember in um, Genesis chapter 3, whenever Satan approaches Eve, he starts off saying, is it really true that you can't eat from any of these trees? And he, he makes it, God seem much harsher than he actually is. He's given a much harsher law. And then Eve says, no, 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 we can eat from all of these trees except for that one tree. And then Satan goes, oh, he doesn't want you to have that tree because he's jealous and he doesn't want you to be like him and he, th- he wants you to stay stupid. So he creates this yearning in the heart of an individual for something that's not good for them. And so uh, whether or not the words conservative or liberal have been used throughout history, something that's been seen from the very beginning within the church is uh, a temptation, a desire on the part not just of normal people, but of leaders to say, oh, that thing that we've always talked about being a sin, it's actually not a sin. You don't need to worry about that. God is nicer than you think he is. On the day of judgment, he will be much more understanding than perhaps you have been led to believe. And for that reason, we can be much more tolerant of sin and sinful behaviors and people who identify with those sinful behaviors than classically has been done. We really don't need to be standing in fear of this God. Um, so I see that whenever I read the book of Jude in particular, I see it really struggling, not struggling, but coming down very firmly against that mindset in the church. Do you agree with me that um, that, that do- is an accurate portrayal of the dynamic between conservatives trying to uphold a, a consistent eternal message versus liberals wanting to revise that and, and um, questioning foundational things like uh, God's wrath and um, the nature of sin and damnation. I, I think that's what I've heard you saying around eschatology. Well, and and I think we have both in our scriptures, right? We have both versions. So conserv- conservatives would say, yes, we definitely have love, but we God's love and his wrath are not polar opposites. They're not at odds. They don't cancel each other out. These are two sides of the same coin. Whereas I think liberals would say, no, 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 wrath doesn't fit with love, and I choose love over wrath, right? I I think, well, and maybe it's just me, I think God's angry about a lot in our world. Right. 
a lot. Well, and I think things. liberals would say that. Uh, generally speaking, I think liberals would say that. But I think generally speaking, liberals would say, but he's not going to damn anyone who is doing these things. He's not going to punish eternally anyone who are doing these things that he does not like. Well, and I would say that in regards to the LGBTQ plus community. Right. Right. I mean, that's if we're if we're just focusing in on that. But I do think that there are places in scripture where religious leaders and others have been um, have missed the point. And I think Surely. and I think all of us miss the point Surely. on a whole multitude of things. I just I'm just sad because of the ways in which this conversation has really done harm. And I and and I I would say that both a lot of our our more progressive clergy or more traditionalists or conservative clergy would say, this isn't good anyway. This conversation isn't great for the LGBTQ plus community. Um, that it is doing harm. This is a theological conversation mm -hmm. that has put them kind of in the middle. Um, my parents are divorced, and I remember being put in the middle a lot. Mm. It's it's not good because what it's doing is it's making people say, "There's no place for me in the church," and I don't like people talking about me when mm. I'm not here. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the concerns is we're not really listening to people either in in, in some contexts, right? Like, and that's not to say that people don't have friends and things like that, but on a college campus. Mm -hmm. Our conservative students are are more progressive students, um, because the truth of the matter is we're not we're not all progressive, we're not all conservative. We're usually sure. on a spectrum. Oh sure. Um, this is not they their eyes roll when we put people in the middle. Um, mm -hmm. When in reality, this is about an institution. Well, this let is me about our go ahead. Yeah, I want to put it to you because you work with the demographic in, in question here. Are you at all familiar with the work of Jonathan Haidt, um, The Coddling of the American Mind? Um, he is a NYU professor. He is a liberal. He's a Durkheimian um, liberal. I, 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 think he's, I think he's got part of the answer. He's not a Christian. He's an a atheist Jew, I think. So, um, but in the... Uh, the Coddling of the American Mind, I think he published it like eight years ago. It was because starting in about 2012, he noticed uh, a palpable change on college campuses with this whole family of, of ideas around microaggressions, trigger warnings, all of the um, the hypersensitivities of, of what I would call far leftism. But he, he became very concerned about this because it made his job a lot harder. Uh, he had to guard his speech a lot more. He could be reported um, for various things, and and there was a new orthodoxy on campuses where if you stepped out of line, uh, big bad things could happen to you. Uh, cancellation, I think, is the word for all that. So the the theory he put forward is that starting in the nineteen late 80s, early 90s, parents started coddling their kids more um, out of a concern for doing harm to them. Here's, here's the connection point, the harm principle. And he says, uh, we stopped letting our kids out of the house as young to play and negotiate the harsh realities of life and bullying and all that. We got much more invasive in our school systems, trying to protect kids from unpleasant experiences, uh, certain rites of passage. And what that resulted in is especially fragile people that are not resilient and cannot deal with um, trials and tribulations of various uh 
proportions. And then as, as they enter into the workplace, all of a sudden we see the workplace also being transformed in order to meet the, the felt needs of particularly sensitive people. And, and he makes the argument that that is not sustainable, that we cannot go on as a society uh, walking on eggshells around other people's sensitivities. And, and we continue to see a revision of unacceptable terms and, and more social etiquette rules that are continually moving. It's a moving target not to offend other people. He, he, he likens the metaphor, he says, is uh, peanut allergies – are are going way up, and it's because we're not being we're not exposing our children to peanuts, and so they don't encounter peanut products until later when their body overreacts against it. And he says ideologically, and he would expand it to theology as well. Theologically, that's what's going on as well. We have become intolerant of ideas, concepts that make us uncomfortable, and um, uh, even if it's bad for us, we're wanting to isolate ourselves from that. So. As I connect that with the words you just said, having these conversations about people is doing them harm. And I, I think this corresponds – I mean I noticed before I got married, people didn't even like labels. They didn't want it you know, uh, in the dating scene. Are, are we together? Are we boyfriend, girlfriend? You know, they, they, they hated labels. And within the theological conversation, oh, I don't like, like labels. I'm not a conservative or I'm not a liberal. I think that there's this whole trend of contemporary America not to like labels, not to be fit within certain categories or boxes, not to be an, uh, an object of conversation, not to be scrutinized in any way. And I wonder if that's all connected to a very unhealthy uh, desire of a way of being in the world that's just not realistic. We are going to struggle with what the good life is or what walking with God rightly looks like, and we have to look at other people and other models in order to do that. And when we don't have anything nice to say about a particular model, people who identify with that can be sensitive and say, this is doing me harm, you really shouldn't do that. But I think we need a robust and resilient populace that can stand um, to do what you've done. You know, you seem like, you don't seem like a, a sociopathic person. Here's who I am. Everybody operate around me. You've vulnerably taken a position of conscience where people are talking about you and you're the object of conversation. And, and I would like to think that I've been fair in talking about you. Other people have not been fair, I'm sure. Um, but you, you don't have an option not to exist in the world and to have people not talk about you. And, and you might perhaps say, well, I'm strong and I can and I'm in a position of privilege, but these unprivileged people, that shouldn't be put on them. And, and so I, as the mean conservative, would say, we have no other choice. There is no way to be in the world and not be talked about. And so we just need to model for people how to do that, how to, how to bear that, how to be resilient through that, and how to reflect on themselves in light of that. Um, because if, if we are seriously in a position where we cannot talk about people because they identify as, as victims or as weak, then that makes it so that we can't have any number of conversations that need to be had, right? I guess my response to that would be contextual, right? That I think sometimes we forget the context in which we, we live, the context, our history, um, and the, the harm that has been done. And, and I know you just talked about, you know, we, we're talking generational stuff, right? Sure. Like, I mean, if we're talking about um, 
race, we would have to go back and look at all these different things that have happened and acknowledge that, you know, red line districts are terrible. Mm -hmm. right? Like all, all those things. And I think we're at a place now where we can say like, yes, these are all these are all not good things. And we need to figure out what that is. I think the, the difference is I don't know if we've done that in the I think people will say things like, you know, conversion therapy is is bad and wrong and should mm -hmm. not have been done or, you know, some different things. But I don't know. I, I And look, we're kids. If, if you're 38, too, we're kids of that generation, yeah. right? Of yeah. not being able to go outside and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I have had to deal with so much less and so many less obstacles mm -hmm. than others. I mean, I am I am ridiculously blessed to be able to go to college, to have generational wealth, to not have people question me. And I mean, and when I was in high school, I went, yeah, I went to an all boys Catholic high school. I, I was called all kinds of names and that wasn't my identity. I can only imagine what it is when consistently your identity is being questioned, when you're the, the source of news stories. Um, and, and I don't think that that's the same as just saying, well, you know, we, we you know, just toughen up buttercup type thing. Um, but and, I do think that yeah. there is, I, I think this is where, to, where conversation comes in. Mm -hmm. Yes. There needs to be resiliency, mm -hmm. right? Like, and we try to build that in our family, right. Of things aren't always fair. You know, you know, last night, my son had an award ceremony for his team mm -hmm. and not everyone got an award. Good. That's the way it works, right? Yeah, like, yeah. good for you. Yeah. Like you did not get an award this year. Yeah. I would also take that as a plus that you weren't the most improved because that's always like you were really bad. And now, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, as someone who won many most improved uh, uh, <laughs> uh, player awards, I know what that means. Uh -huh. But, but, you know, so I think we do that. I think sometimes I wish that we would look institutionally mm -hmm. and have conversations around institutions mm -hmm. and in ways in which harm is being done before we throw like, this person under the bus or or particular individuals because those individuals are we're all systems of our institutions right this is the sociologist coming out at me right society institutions the church as a whole mm -hmm. they're all at play in the way in which we view life where we grew up what we learned what we taught what we were taught etc cetera, etc cetera. and i just think when we're talking about I mean, there, uh, and and I'll, I'll I'll throw the stat that I I know you know and other people know mm -hmm. that religious affiliation and religious connections with LGBTQ plus youth increase rates of suicide. That's heartbreaking, and I think all of us would say that's heartbreaking. I just wonder so, at some point. I'm not sure that everybody is familiar with with okay. that. So I the, I the thing that I just heard you say is that whenever persons who identify as uh, gender non-conforming or sexually non-conforming in some sense, when they are closer to a religious community, their odds of suicide go up. Yes. Okay. Do you, do you know how much, by what, by what increment well, their suicide can, rate goes up? I can do a quick look. And since I like having links on my show notes, how about you go ahead and uh, oh. email me the link to that study as well so that the audience can look at that?
And as and as I will look it up. I don't I don't have an exact number, but we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, 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 yeah. We can look it up later. And the reason that that matters so much is because if um, the presence of one's religious framework is causing death, then if there's a causative or even a correlative relationship with death, then it should cause at least some pause as to whether or not it actually serves the Lord of life. Yeah. So I found, I don't have an exact thing. And again, I just did a, I mean, this is the National Institute of Health. So it's not, I mean, I know some people will say that, you know, but that that was a quick search, but yeah, yeah. it does. Yeah. Well, so there's, there's question the source, which, you know, I, I don't like, I, I think most of our institutions in the health field did fail us over the last few years. I'm one of those. But even so, just because it came from a source that I don't like does not mean that it's false. And so it all just has to do with methodology and, and um, how, how the study was done. But I, I, I can't tell you that I was familiar with that um, before our conversation, and so I, I'm going to need to look at that um, and, and see what the methodology was and how big the sample size and if it was a double-blind study and, and all that, because those things matter. Um, I know the stereotype definitely is that the the strict unbanding standards of uh, conservatives does not impact young people in particular well, and that as we continue to be unbending and unyielding in our rendering of the gospel, that we are ensuring our demise, and that um, uh, if we were wise in trying to get people into the church, that we would stop doing that. Would that be a a good way to to portray that frame of mind. I'm sorry. Can you say it again? <laughs> uh, I, I was saying that that the critique that I, I think you're leveling is um, young people are not responding well to an unbending, unyielding, conservative rendering of the gospel, and so we are ensuring the demise of the church as we continue not to compromise with the world, and we need to reconsider our stance. We need to be more gracious and not talk about. Um, certain sins that people identify with if we want those people to come into the church to, to be part of the salvation community. Well, I think the, the question, again, goes back to what's a sin, right? Is is this sinful? And I think that that's a disconnect. I would say no. I, I would say well, God yeah. made it. Yeah, liberals would say no. And I I asked this question earlier. The, the reason for saying no, I think at that point we went into not really buying the 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 doctrine of the fall that that people could be born sexually broken that God could make sexually broken people, um, but what once again I think you would say that there are sins sin is such a thing right right um, yeah but to say that even though the scriptures identify a whole slew of behaviors that that are sexually nonconforming as sin. That that you and others well, and you would probably say there is such a thing as sexual sin, right? Yeah, but but just being being uh, erotically inclined towards a person of the same biological sex is not one of those things. By by what me is it is it certain principles that we impute onto the scriptures of if it ticks this box and this box and this box, it cannot be sin. I think, I think the question around sin is always: Are we are we missing the mark? Right? Yeah. Are we not living out what God wants for us? And and that's again, the, I think the fundamental question is: Is is if if people are created this way, 
and there is no fall or there is a fall. See, that's why I say it's that I think this is the issue on which everything else turns. Can people be born sexually broken? People be born sexually broken. Like Max, Um, you know, minor attracted persons. This is a sexual orientation where people are attracted to prepubescent people. It's it's how they were made. It's it's part of their identity. Um, Is that uh, a symptom of the fall, or would you say no? Gay people are born that way, but Maps they're not born that way. That's something societally conditioned. It doesn't matter if they identify with that in a very deep sense. It's not who God created them to be. I, I I haven't done enough research on on that. I I mean I think that children are a vulnerable population, and so no, like. So you would say I, that's sexual sin, maps, uh, minor attracted persons. Um, yeah. So that's sexual sin because it has to do with principles of power dynamics, probably. Right. Um, vulnerable and vulnerable people. But whereas I mean we're, I mean we're talking about consensual relationships between adults. Yeah. And I, know, and I know we can go through like – Well, you know, and we don't have to. I'm just trying to figure but, out like what are the principles at play? Because for conservatives, it's real easy. If the Bible says it's a sin, it's a sin. you know. And then, yes, there are areas where we've negotiated what that looks like and how to interpret that in different contexts in history. But at no point does that make it acceptable for conservatives to say, well, we just get to negotiate everything. And for liberals, it really does seem to go to a place of everything is subject to negotiation and review. For conservatives, there isn't that place. There, there. You continually have to contend with the scriptures, um, and so when we're trying to share an institution, the United Methodist Church, and there are some who are willing to uh, disregard entirely and say that they were socially conditioned, and there are others that say no, we we can't disregard that, and even if all of society is going this way, we cannot go this way. There really can't be, uh, my opinion is there really can't be cooperation between those two. And then it just becomes a power struggle over the levers of power in the institution. I think that's what we've seen. Um, do you do you also see things in that way? Or do you think that there is some kind of, I, I think I did hear you saying earlier that there is a tenable middle ground. Maybe that was just with respect to the doctrine of the fall. But when we're looking practically at the institution of the United Methodist Church, I guess I hear you saying there isn't a middle ground. We... Uh, we need to understand that talking about this is talking about people's identities. It's doing harm, and this is not a conversation we can be having anymore. I think that there's space to be able to have a conversation um, that just doesn't. People who have been continuously set apart or or sidelined in the conversation. I know conservatives might say, "Hey, that's not the case." You know, we have bishops who identify in this way and and such i just think that at some point we again i think that there's great harm being done to these individuals and to these especially to to these kids Mm -hmm. right who are asking these questions who are trying to figure out who they are who say you know i've grown up in the church and i love god Mm -hmm. but i'm so confused as to what's happening and who I am. And I've been kicked out of churches. I've been done harm. I've been kicked out of my family. I mean, and again, this is anecdotal. And but I mean, I had students who were not allowed to go home yeah. during a global pandemic. Right. Their family said, no, you need to be homeless. Mm. So that 
So I think think everybody would be on the side of that shouldn't happen. I I, I mean, it would be only the most extreme people who would say, yeah, kick them out, you know. Um, Of course. I I I would be more extreme than most in saying, I believe that the church as a covenant community and a denomination as a covenant community can and should reserve the right to say, you're not interested in what we're doing here, and so we we don't think you should be here. I, I think that's the difference between an ecclesiastical body and the government. I don't think, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the civil rights movement because everybody lives here. We need to live together rightly. But when you're talking about the United Methodist Church, we're talking about a voluntary association that is bound by a covenant. And so that's when we're talking about you personally and the just resolution process. This gets into, you saw just resolution with a, a person that already knows and likes you and is on your side with all this. Go ahead. But that's not 100% true because the bishop always has to sign off on right. it. Right. Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So no matter who else is in the room, the mm-hmm. bishop still has to agree. Yeah. And the bishop, we knew, if we had just gone in and said, hey, look, can can I get a Friday off and a mm-hmm. six pack of, of uh, soda? Mm-hmm. No, that was never going to fly. And so, I mean, so it's not really fair to be like, hey, you know, you just did it to to, to do that. And I think that that's a common misconception. The bishop always has to sign off on it. Is, which are you familiar, so silly. Go ahead. Are you familiar with any scenarios where a complaint was lodged to get a, against a person and the plaintiff and the, the, the person that was filed charges against that they reached a just resolution, but the bishop didn't like it and refused to sign off of it. Are we aware of that ever happening anywhere? Yeah, right here. Well, so with you, my understanding was that the bishop didn't even uh, choose to entertain the first complaint, but that she worked only with the superintendent's complaint. It's not true. The uh, first complaint was in every supervisory response meeting we had. Okay. And, and the, the second, second one? complaint didn't. Was as well and withdrew the complaint about 800 days into the So the, the superintendent withdrew his or her complaint, and then it yeah. was only the first. So so then in that case, the first plaintiff, and you reached a just resolution, but Bishop Lewis said, no, this doesn't fly with me. Bishop Lewis actually substituted a new person in 800 days to ensure that a just resolution would not be achieved. Which again— What was the title of that person? It's another DS. It was another DS who was supposed to oversee the just resolution process. Who she he, she recused he herself. A new complainant. No, he became a new complainant. Okay, so, so there were three complainants in this story. Yes. Okay, but there's still the just resolution process where the plaintiff and the you and the bishop all together have to come. And so there was a, a second DS that came on essentially to take the place of the first. And so did the bishop ever get to a place where you had reached a just resolution with one of your plaintiffs and the bishop said, no, I don't sign off on this? Yeah, I mean, the original thing was to take a suspension and to go and do a learning activity like for the conference. That's what the plaintiff wanted for you. Mm -hmm. But the bishop didn't sign off on that. Correct. And did, did she just not sign off on it or did she say, I'm not going to sign? This is not a sufficient punishment. By having a DS in the room continuously, it was it was null and void. Okay, you have to do it. Okay, and and to be fair, so our process is really complicated, right? Like yes. their process is really complicated, and yeah. most bishops get it wrong. Most do. 
I think the difference with Bishop Lewis— Well, I Lewis, think it's so complicated that there's no way to get it right. That's what I would say. Probably. Yeah. And the Judicial Council decision that was named off of a declaratory decision um, or a— um, yeah, declared asking for a declaratory decision from mm. judicial council did nothing to clear it up. Yeah, uh, and that's it's not going one. to. I mean, so my theory. Yeah, let, we'll take we'll take a step back from theology and go into uh, uh, institutional dynamics. Um, <laughs> I think that the inst- that the the system is intentionally designed to be Byzantine and difficult, and so that people in power can utilize it for their own benefit without accountability to, to people like you and me. What do you think about that? Oh, I think 100%. So, but then my solution to that, I think is different than yours, where I just say, get rid of it all and just let bishops directly rule on on disciplinary violations. Yeah, I, I would disagree with that. Right. And the reason why is it opens the door to a whole bunch of things, right? So let's say a bishop doesn't like you. Yeah, epis- Episcopal abuse, definitely. Yeah, abuse yeah. of power. And I'm okay with that because then you can have black and white. They abused power. Here's the call they made. There's clearly bigotry involved here. Um, I don't think you can have that with the current institutional system in place. I think you can just say, well, there are a lot of things happening behind closed doors that you don't know about. And gee, we have confidentiality at place. So you really can't speak to this. You just need to understand that the people in, in authority, they, they have the best intentions for you. It's this very paternalistic thing. That can only exist with this. This, uh, it, so so if I I'm of the mind that this side of heaven there's just going to be corruption, bad behavior, bad actors, and that we just need that as easy and plain to see as possible. So that's what I that's why I advocate for that system. But in your mind, you do believe that there is an alternative system that could maybe be uh, created that would protect individuals from episcopal abuse, and and that we've chosen not to do that. Yeah, and I think it. I think it's gonna have to come from General Conference to streamline this system. Are and you aware of anybody who's making a recommendation about what that would look like? I know there are things in the works. Okay. Do you, Do you know? Can you say who who is advocating that? Who's promoting? I that? don't know enough of what they're doing and where they are in the process that we feel comfortable naming what that looks like or That's who fine. it is. Okay. Um, but my guess is that in a at general conference, I'm hoping that there's legislation that's put forth mm-hmm. um, to be able to to make sure that some things like this don't happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, and and it is it is very difficult to be fair. I think the the frustration is is when we asked questions mm-hmm. about the process, we were shut down. And no, I'm not gonna. The constant thing was always you have a team of people. Mm-hmm ask them. I'm not the, I'm not the expert. That's supposed to be the expert. Right. Yeah. Yeah. See, and that sort of thing just drives me nuts. It just drives me bananas, you know, because I'm a black and white guy. Tell me yes or no. Tell me, tell me where to move forward. I'll move forward if I can, you know, but if it's, I'm not going to tell you, you need to go knock on that door. Oh, they didn't have an answer for you. There might be another door for you here, but it, but it ain't here. Just kill me now. Just stop where this is a farce, you know, so I, I that's the place where I really identify with you. And I just I hate the way that it's gone. But I mean, uh, so that there's that sounds compassionate. But then the part of me that that you probably wouldn't like is I'm very black and white about it. It says in the covenant what it what we're about and how we see things and what's right and what's wrong. You violated that. So to my mind, 
the day after you did this gay wedding, you should have been booted from, uh, you should have been defrocked. You should have been no longer clergy of the United Methodist Church because um, the way I see it, you didn't violate the the person who files the, the charges against you. You vi- violated the covenant that binds us all together um, that that is not the Bible, but it is... A, a, in a sense, a sacred document that we have all collaboratively come together on. Um, and when when anyone violates any part of that, it's not just the gay stuff. I mean, I'm talking about infant baptism. You know, when when conservative clergy refuse to do an infant baptism, sure, I'm I'm also consistent on that. I, I think if your theology does not allow for that, you are not a United Methodist, and and you should not be in a United Methodist leadership role. So. So clearly you and I have – well, and I think liberals in general and conservatives in general have a different understanding of what it means to be in good covenant faithfulness. And I think what I've heard you say is I made baptismal vows. You know, I made vows to pastorally care for people. That's what I aim to do, and whenever the Book of Discipline stands in the way of that, I have a primary pastoral role that I need to pay more attention to than that. And so someone like me would say – when you became clergy, you said that you found the Bible and the Book of Discipline to fit together and that you would honor and uphold the Book of— not parts of the Book of Discipline, the whole Book of Discipline, and that if you couldn't do that, you shouldn't have been clergy. So, and I don't say that with a hard heart. I say that with the heart of you clearly have a way— you do not see yourself as a dishonest person who has come to ruin things. You see yourself as an honest person, a principled person, who somehow found yourself in this position where, well, it was, so when you made the vows that you found the book of discipline to 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 be fitting with the the scriptures and that you would uphold all of it. Did you know at that point that you were not going to uphold all of it? Um, I I did it. So I became clergy in. Right, I got ordained in twenty, gosh, I think twenty eighteen, and with the understanding of General Conference twenty nineteen around the corner, and believed foolishly what all everyone was saying was, "Oh, this is going to change. This is going to change. This is going to change." Um, it didn't, and so yeah, I, I mean, I did violate the Book of Discipline, and. And and look, that's that's maybe a small mitigating thing for for people. Like, but you still agreed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some context there, and and I think that that's one of the reasons why we said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna talk ahead of time, we're gonna talk afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason to turn yourself into is, but let me let me stop you right there because like, if my wife was like. I'm going to cheat on you tomorrow, and I just want to make sure you know. And then after she slept with another guy, she's like, I just want to make sure you know I slept with that guy yesterday. I'd be like, we have a problem here. You and I are not okay. And if she yeah. was like, well, I talked to one of the kids, and, and and she and I reached a just resolution, so really you need to sign off too. I mean, I would not receive that well at all. I mean, that just seems really disrespectful to me. Well, in that situation, you would still have to sign off on it because you'd be the bishop. Right, right. So in my mind— what the bishop? I mean, in no world should the bishop have signed off on a just resolution that was anything less than your being remo- removed from the pulpit. If the if the book of discipline means anything, then sure. 
I don't know why she was so reluctant to use the authority given her. I don't know why she kept you in limbo rather than just making a decision. And I would love to ask her that question. I don't think anybody knows the answer to that question, do they? No, I mean, there are guesses. And, and to be fair, COVID happened in, in March of 2020, right? So, and I, look, I'm glad that we were focused as a denomination on on COVID and on re the response. Mm -hmm. Whether whether people agree we got everything right or everything wrong, I'm glad my case was not like the thing that sure. people were dealing with. I just um, don't see, I mean, I don't see how COVID would have kept the bishop from making, uh, a, uh, bringing things to a close with you. I, I don't see how that would have logistically, she didn't, I mean, in my mind, it, that would take an hour sitting down with the conference, what, chancellor, I don't know, the, the conference lawyer, whatever, figuring it out, saying, here's my declaration, ends is, is punished for a year with the minimum sentence. I don't know. I don't know what kept her from, well, no, she would have had to, she would have had to have a church trial in order to do that, right? Right. So that's a minimum $100,000 expense of the annual conference, right? 60 to 100 yeah. is, the, is the number we were given. So yeah, that's the other thing that infuriates people like me, where like there was a clear disciplinary violation. We don't need to spend all this money and get all these people together. Just put the gavel down, punished, the end. But it, it that was never going to be an option. What's a, And to be fair, in my particular case, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So actually, I probably would have, a trial would have been helpful. And that's why I pushed for it. I said, look, if you want to move, let's move. Mm -hmm. um, again, I'm I'm not Bishop Lewis. But why, why do you think a trial would have been helpful? So I, I don't work for the United Methodist Church. Right. Okay. I work for an ecumenical campus ministry of five different denominations, the PCUSA, Episcopal Diocese of Virginia, the UCC, the Disciples of Christ, the United Methodist Church. Uh -huh. And when they agreed to let me go and serve, I, they signed a document that said I'd respect the religious traditions of all five mm -hmm. groups. Yeah. There is a portion of the book discipline that talks about a federated congregation. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I don't know. People might have said, but your orders are with the United Methodist Church and you agreed that you were going to uphold the board, the book of discipline. Yeah. Yeah. I would have argued you signed a document that said I had to respect all these religious traditions. Four of the five are for full inclusion and for uh, clergy that are in their ranks have to marry same sex couples to use the book of uh, discipline language. So, but again, you, I mean, at this point, I feel like I know you well enough. Don't you feel like that that would be okay? Like, say a Muslim is doing an ecumenical ministry with sure. some uh, Christians, as weird as that would be, no one would say, "Well, you need to start praying to Jesus." You know, no one would be like, "You're federated with us Christians now, so you need to worship Jesus." You know, like nobody would expect that of a Muslim who had joined an ecumenical. We would say, "You bring in your cultural distinctiveness; we'll work as well as we can together." But you don't have to conform to our different set of doctrinal beliefs, right? Like, we wouldn't ask that of anybody. Well, I mean, there has to be space for that, right? Like, you can't work in ecumenical and say, no, we, we can only do things this way. You can't? No. No, you you have to, if it's truly an ecumenical, and, and maybe the better thing is to, is to look at us. I know the process for several of our uh, uh, traditions on what it means to be clergy. 
it's different. I'm working with Presbyterians and Methodists. Mm-hmm. I view things from a Methodist standpoint, but I bring Presbyterians in to have conversations about what does this look like? If a student comes up and says, I want to be clergy in the Presbyterian church, mm-hmm. I'm not going, well, you know what you really should do? Go be Methodist because we're better, you know, those kinds of things. I have to say, okay, this is the process that I know. Let me, how can I support you in this process? Hmm. Even though I'm United Methodist clergy. I, so I if they came think, to me and wanted to be a Presbyterian pastor, I'd just say, I'm United Methodist. Go talk to a Presbyterian. Don't ask me to represent the Presbyterians. You know? but, it, but, but you I, can't do that? Well, I mean, certainly I say, here's someone else, but again, as the campus minister, that's their connection point is here. And so I journey with them during their, during their candidacy and what that looks like and helping them. So there's, there's certainly processes that are done through the presbytery, but still walk with them. I mean, again, and I think that this is where the space of having a trial matters. Well, and, I don't know, Drew, like how many people is that really going to impact? Is that really the best use of ecclesiastical? I mean, is this why people put their money into the plate? Is this why we have bishops in place to 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 make a ruling on um, campus ministry role that maybe 1% of our clergy fall into? Absolutely not. And that's why the Book of Discipline is very clear uh-huh. that the goal is a just resolution and that trial should only be done at the very, like, the least resort. But then that puts the bishop in a position of, you have to, you have to give in to a process that you think is unjust, a punishment that you think is unjust, otherwise we're going to waste all these church dollars on you getting your way. And I don't think, that puts the bishop in a position of being wasteful and uh, petty. You know, I, I think... Well, so there's that. But the other thing I wanted to say is I think when it's a just resolution process, it fundamentally misunderstands the nature of broken covenant. Because whenever one has broken a covenant, it's not with any individual member of that covenant community. It's with the entire covenant community. And so in that sense, you either have a church trial for every covenant violation or you have a person designated, like Moses, you know, was to execute justice according to the covenant given. You know, and I don't think that that requires uh, a twelve-member group of one's peers or how whatever the stipulations are. I think you can just have a person of integrity endowed with authority. That's how John Wesley and Francis Asbury functioned. Um, and when we when we insist on these larger systemic um, choreographed uh, movements, then I think that ensures the demise of an increasingly litigious institution. So one might feel like this particular issue right here is worth it. But as soon as you open that door, I think it's called the Overton window, where all of a sudden the whole group shifts and what once was not acceptable becomes acceptable and untenable. And we happen to be talking about a denomination which in some annual conferences, including Virginia, I'm pretty sure between 2019 and 2021, average worship attendance was cut in half. 48%. I I did these numbers yesterday and has almost certainly gone down since then. We're we're living, we we talk about medieval Europe after the plague where it killed, I think, one in three people. And we say, these people must have been traumatized. They're walking around and one in three people they used to know were not there. Our denomination, that's us. You know, we have lost so much. We are in free fall 
as a, a when I shouldn't say we, my church is just disaffiliated. I think the paperwork is being processed in a week. Y'all are in free fall. <laughs> and, and in the midst of this, we're talking about having church trials that are between 60 and 100K um, over issues of flagrant uh, covenant violation. It just seems off base. I don't know. I, and I, I get, and I, I don't say that against, uh, that's not meant like as a personal assessment, but it just seems like, well, okay, in Africa, the way they talk about us is, you know, here we are in Africa dealing with systemic issues of real poverty, not being able to get things together. We have religious persecution where Christians are being killed by Muslims in northern Nigeria. We have people uh, uh, with open corruption and power abuses, and then these Americans want to impose their sexual orthodoxy on us and tell us that we're bigots and that we're doing things wrong. And if we just get things right sexually, then then we'll be the church. And it just seems really disconnected from reality. Um, so do you? But you definitely wouldn't see things that way. You would say, I think that the sexual getting. Uh, our theology around sexual sin is important. We need to revise traditional notions of sexual sin in order to be the church that God is calling us to be, right? I, You know, all the things you named about things happening in Africa are much more important to me. They are. I, I am tired of trying to question of this being the only thing going on in our church. Mm-hmm. And I think I think young people are tired of it. Mm-hmm. I think the LGBTQ plus community is tired of being the center and the focus uh, of everything. I, I really think, as you named, there are a million other things that we need to be doing. There's disaster relief that needs to happen. Well, Drew, let me, let me say, I wonder what you would make. Did you study what happened with the Liberation Methodist Connection? A little bit. So if, uh, so here's the the conservative the conservative stereotype of liberals that you are going to dismantle and say no Jeffrey that's wrong that's is that liberals um, are uh, focused inward on their their own stuff and that far from uh, LGBTQ persons not wanting to be talked about many have been very happy to be the center of the conversation and enter into conversations happening and saying, you are not listening to my voice. And because of my identity that I've claimed, you have to listen to my voice and privilege it above other voices because of intersectionality. And that far from the the post-separation United Methodist Church is going to be a church that is explicitly governed by minority voices claiming that authority by virtue of being sexual minorities and shaming those um, who traditionally hold authority, uh, heterosexual white men, for continuing to claim um, uh, authority and leadership and saying, it's your role to be quiet now. It's our turn to lead by virtue of our minority status. That's that's what conservatives think is coming down the pike for the post-separation United Methodist Church. Um, and uh, with the passing of the Christmas covenant, I don't know if you know about that, but that's explicitly separating culturally um, North American United Methodism from African and Filipino, we're going to become, if anything, more insular and more focused on our niche theological issues and less focused on Africa and and their issues. So do you think that that, how off base do you, do you think that's all entirely off base or do you think that that has some real stuff to it? 
Well, I think that some people are going to, there may not be as many white men in power. And that's probably a good thing. I don't think it's going to dismantle all, you know, I think that there's going to be a diversity of voices. And I think that makes us stronger. And I hope in the end, when people go, you know what, we're, here's the truth matter. We're not all going to still be the same. There's still going to be a conservative or a more conservative group. There's still going to be a more progressive group. I hope that, I think we need each other, right? I, I would look at Congress right now mm -hmm. here in the States, and I would say the fact that they can't get anything done hurts all of us, that they're not listening to one another, that they're not hearing what each other is saying, that they're not working together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I need in my life, my more conservative friends. I need more, I need my friends that are more progressive than I am because I can't be a silo. I think that that's going to be the case. I, I think once we are all so focused right now and hyper-focused in this country as a whole mm -hmm. on LGBTQ plus concerns and topics and, and because it's, it's what's selling media well, in some way. So it's a cycle. So I would say what's happened is nobody wants to be talking about it, maybe, but liberals want the conversation just to be over you old bigots of the past were wrong and you need to shut up now and we're moving into the future with this shared understanding of, of, of all sexual practices as long as they tick certain boxes being co-equal. Um, and then conservatives saying, y'all need to stop trying to revise historically understood ethics. Uh, we don't want to be talking about this. So I, I think both are saying we, can, we don't want to talk about this, so you stop talking about it. You you let our side prevail, and that's how I understand what happened after 2019 because the General Conference did speak and pass the traditionalist plan, and then the left said, nope, you reached the wrong conclusion. We are not abiding by that, and we're not leaving. You're going to have to leave, and now we're seeing that. Well, I would say it's not that, that we said – that the that the other like I I was there I wasn't there I didn't vote for anything but mm -hmm. but we didn't tell conservatives that they have to leave no 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 I think what ended they just up said happening, we're not leaving and we're gonna do what we want well I think what they said was we're not leaving and we're gonna vote a super majority to jurisdictional conferences mm -hmm. and so now all the bishops are more progressive oh yes and so it became a deadlock. The laws on the books were more traditional. Mm -hmm. Those who would enforce them were more progressive. But the jurisdictional conferences happened after the 2019 General Conference, where that was supposed to be a final say. I mean, every the, the special called conference was, this is our final position. We've been arguing for decades. This is going to be the one to figure it out. We figured it out. And then the minority, liberal minority in America said, nope, you didn't figure it out right. We're not leaving. Well— but the problem was it's not a liberal it, – it's a liberal or more progressive group denominationally, but it's a supermajority or a majority here in the states of those who voted. Now, I want to be very clear. Those who voted at jurisdictional conference were the ones and, – and they created a supermajority in every jurisdiction, including the southeast. So what I would say is that, that liberal progressives – organized to create a disproportionate representation at the top of the denomination that does not reflect the grassroots reality of the United Methodist Church. 
which is why I said the the voting members, right? Yeah. Because I don't know for sure. I, I but know. But even but so when you look at United Methodists across the world, conservative, generally speaking. Correct. Correct. Across when you the look world. at our upper management, liberal, generally speaking. But when you look at general conference delegates, they were still connected enough to the grassroots to represent them to pass the traditionalist plan. That represents the majority interest of the entire denomination. But because there were certain uh, liberals in positions of power um, already before jurisdictional conference, they just said, no, we're not, we're not abiding by that. We're not going to do that, and now we're going to use the levers of power to create even more of a disproportionate representation of us. I would be really interested to see what the numbers were for the U.S., o only because I think in some areas – and some conferences, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Some conferences, no. I mean, we in Virginia were passing resolutions and plans. And again, these are voting members of the annual conference. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily the entirety of United Methodists here in Virginia. Mm -hmm. We were able to pass resolutions, pass plans. Um, it, I think it's... I think the problem was it became deadlocked and my guess and what I've read and things like that is Zerus said, we're not doing this anymore. Mm -hmm. Take it. We'll go start our own thing, yeah, which is yeah. more to their understanding more. And again, I, I would push back on some of this, but more true to the scriptures and certainly more um, uh, traditional orthodoxy. Yeah, they would just have a, a, a shared hermeneutic as they come to the scriptures. We just had diametrically opposed hermeneutics. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's the way to go forward and just say uh, our lens through which we're reading the scriptures is mutually exclusive between left and right, and we're working at odds with one another, and we need to stop that. But the truth of the matter is, and what will happen, mm -hmm. is even, even in the global Methodist church, even in the United Methodist Church, there will still be a right and a left. There will still be more conservative and more progressive individuals. If not in the next five years, 10 to 15, I do think that there's going to be space. My understanding of the global Methodist Church is people can leave if they're not honoring the, the covenant that's been established. A lot of people are saying that, but until a new disaffiliation plan is actually, to my knowledge, nobody has actually presented a new disaffiliation plan to replace 2553. So it remains to be seen. It, hypothetically, it's possible. I'm just thinking years from now, there will still be a more conservative group and a more yeah. progressive group so, in these denominations. When you look at historically how institutions in America have behaved, even though there has been a contingent saying, hey, we shouldn't liberalize, generally speaking, everything everywhere has moved to left. American society has moved very – so far left, even in the 1990s, you could not have imagined things were going to travel as far as they have. So within, within every group, yes, there is variety, and people are going to take different sides. But the hope of the GMC is to stem the tide of ascendant liberalism that's overtaken um, United States society, uh, American society, Western society, um, not out of hatred for leftism, but out of a sincere belief that it will lead to nihilism and death. Um, and that's, that's why I am personally a conservative. It's not out of, um, well, this is just how I was raised and I was raised liberal, by the way. That's a big part of my story. Um, but but really looking at things like the coddling of the American mind and um, belief in, in um, 
uh, a sort of societal structure that is being ruptured and nothing good is being put in its place. And with good intentions, I believe that we are, you know, like, so what I would say is you clearly are animated by love and compassion for your students. But I would also say that my personal understanding of human nature, my biblical understanding of the corrective from God leads me to believe that ministries like yours with nothing but good intentions and love are long-term causing harm to students by giving a false self-image, a false understanding of what brings eternal joy and happiness and right relationship with God. And so conservatives, I, I think I can speak for all conservatives, and you already know this, we're not motivated by lo- hate and judgment and just a, a, a desire to, to harm others. It's more um, out of a fundamental belief that humans are born broken and that when left to our own desires, we cause death and destruction. And what's happening in our society right now is we have a very licentious society where people are giving in to their urges and wanting them blessed, and they're finding lots of churches willing to bless them in sin. And I can't be one of those churches. I can't be associated with other churches that are calling good bad and bad good. Um, and so that's why, to my mind, the division is very much needed, um, and why if if Methodists are to separate off, we need to put the safeguards in place to make sure that we aren't going through the same liberal ascendancy 10, 15, 20 years down the line. That's my concern now. Um, I, I do have a blessing in all that for liberals on the other side of it, but before I do that, as you hear me say all that, how much of that is like, what a stereotypical conservative, and then how much of that is like, yeah, he really does see things completely different, and um, or I, I don't know what your response would be. What do you what do you say to all that? Yeah, um, well, I mean, I I just don't find the stereotypes anymore, right? Like, the, I can go to the worst of the worst and yeah. say, oh, that's all conservatives, or all that's all liberals. Mm-hmm. Um, no, and I and I hear that, and I want people to go and worship. And and honestly, I want, as I said, I, I mean, I live and see the harm that's, that's done. Mm-hmm. And again, very, I love our campus ministry. I love our students. Mm-hmm. I love, uh, I love telling them about Jesus. I love seeing their lives transformed. Mm-hmm. I love baptizing people. Um, I love, I love all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and so I I'm tired of the I just want people to go and and do the things that they need to do for God. Like mm-hmm. I think we have lost um a key part of our uh missiology of our of our going out and just building up the the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we've centered a group that that never asked for it. There's there's multiple times where in speaking of our society and our desire to embarrass and shame people, where you know somebody was involved in a situation that wasn't their doing, and then people dox them and find out all this information about mm-hmm. them and put it out online. They're like, right. why why am I getting this? Yes. Yeah. I feel like that's that's what we're kind of doing. You and I are both against doxing. Yeah, yeah. But that's why I feel like we've done a little bit in this conversation. With our not this conversation, but in the greater conversation with LGBT plus persons, many of them are like, I I don't want anything to do with the church. Please stop using me as the reason why 
your church is is falling apart or you know i i'm i'm a kid and i'm growing up and i love jesus and i just want to find a place where i can do that and i wish i could tell you my story um and, and share with you and and i know we we have these stories and so i, I agree with you there there needs to be a separation but a separation with a blessing yeah a decision to not waste each other's time and money um but it still saddens me. So to your mind, and you don't have to speak to this if you don't want to, but we had, uh, I should have the title of the document, memorize the protocol for reconciliation and peaceful separation or something like that. And it yeah. had stipulations in place for a peaceable, amicable split that um, the leaders involved in it largely abandoned. Well, to be to be fair, is it, it was the left-leaning people on the committee all abandoned. And now we're in the midst of a very acrimonious split where most annual conferences are making it very difficult for churches to disaffiliate. They're charging money to those churches rather than the protocol actually giving them some money. It's a very different picture, you know, and as you say that I think we should have an amicable split with a blessing, I think is what you said. Would you agree that the way we're doing it right now is not good? I don't see how what we're doing is working. Yeah. So do you... In in our if you and I had to share authority as dual kings of the United Methodist Church, figuring figuring out how to disaffiliate, would you be with me in saying we just need to claim the terms of the protocol and stop punishing churches that want to leave? Or do you do you have that clarity, or do you, do you only have the clarity that what we're doing is not good right now? I I, I don't know enough. Okay, honestly, yeah. um, I, I I've heard some things and I've heard others, mm -hmm. and I think. I mean, it really feels like a divorce, right? Mm -hmm. If you talk to one partner or one spouse, it's, you never, you know, on the other hand, um, th there had to be a better way. And we should have learned. We should have learned from the Episcopal Church. Right. We should have learned from Presbyterians. Right. We should have learned different ways of doing things. Yes. Um, and the the delays with COVID did not help anything. Well, it helped one side of this. <laughs> I think it would have gone well, very differently. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it would have gone differently. The protocol and would have passed in 2020. Absolutely. Yeah. It, then, it happened the way yeah. it happened. You know, I, I, yeah, I'm with you. I think we should have done, uh, learned better. It, it, it happened the way it happened. I just, I, I have a hard time knowing how much, where the connection points are uh, between different people in the church. And, and mostly here in Oklahoma, whenever I speak to liberals, uh, they go, they don't even, if I present to them what I just presented to you, uh, yeah, maybe the protocol was right for the time being, but then you guys started doing all this misinformation and now we're glad that you're hurting on the way out. And it's just like, we had a real acrimonious, um, uh, special called conference last week that I just think was really unfortunate. So I'm glad that, that your heart hasn't been tainted in that way where you would have, uh, that sort of joy in the suffering of others. Um, the the I I haven't wanted to participate. A lot of conservatives have done this. You know, we're having a Paul and Barnabas moment. We're both Christians. We just can't work together. Let's bless each other and go on. And I haven't been able to do that because I do think liberals generally participate in a diametrically opposite theological framework. And it seems disingenuous to say, oh, we're basically doing the same thing. I think we really are fundamentally doing different things. But even so, I do like the Gamaliel approach when. Um, the disciples were brought before the Sanhedrin, 
uh, in Acts of the Apostles, he says, look, if God is not with them, it's not going to work out for them. But if God is with them, there's nothing we can do to stand against them. And so right. that's the approach that I've wanted, where we just go, we, I feel like the good guy, I think that they're wrong, but I'm a human and I can be wrong. So how about we split up? We bless one another. And hey, if you are on God's side, then God prosper you and take me down. That's how I want to split, you know? And I don't know how many people can do that when we just feel so clearly we're on the side of right. But that's the blessing that I can offer you and other liberals who now receive ownership of the denomination if the Africans don't get in your way. And so if you're going to take over, if you're going to be the, if, if the UMC is now going to be governed by a liberal theological framework in an unchallenged entirety, then if you're on God's side, I hope you prevail. I hope you bring the whole fold under your leadership. Uh, I, I think if you're on God's side, that'd be wonderful. If you're not on God's side, I hope you crash and burn, you know? And uh, I, I say that not because it's funny, but it's just, um, I think that's what we all have. I hope you would pray the exact same thing for me, Drew. Um, and uh, I think that's the way that we can model. You know, if you and I are having this conversation and modeling a better way forward, I think I think that's what it looks like, um, is just saying we're at a fundamentally different place, but I see you have good intentions. And if you're on God's side, I hope you prevail, and I hope I don't. Um, do you think that's a good way for us to wrap up, or do you think that there is a different spin that would be better for us to to encourage whoever watches this? No, I mean, I think that that's, that's fair, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and maybe not crash and burn, right? Like I, but I do think that that, that will be the question, right? Mm -hmm. Like is, where are we? And who, how is God blessing us? And I, and I really do genuinely mean, because I have friends, I have friends that have been tied up in difficult conversations at our annual conference. I have friends who are still discerning. I have friends who left. Um, I want God's blessing to really be on them. Mm -hmm. And um, do I secretly hope one day that they come to see my point of view? Of course I do. Of course. Yes. Of course I do. Right? Yeah. Well, You're not doing them wrong. Right. It is not a wrong thing to want to connect with other people. And right. to to I, I I don't think it's a wrong thing to want to change other people because the heart there is to be one with other people. That is a, a good impulse, you know. So I I would definitely not fault you for that. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, Drew, I think we did okay at this. How do you feel? <laughs> I, I feel okay. Okay. Well, we'll see if there's any other. I mean, there's we 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 could have talked for hours longer. These issues are huge, but I think that this was a good. What I hope for anyone who spent time watching this is that you just get a good sense of people with good intentions just having fundamentally diametrically opposed uh, views where we don't have to be hurtful and hateful and wishing each other bad, uh, but we can just soberly assess a situation and have an amicable split. I, I have no thought that, that Drew is, is secretly hating me and just waiting to talk trash about me as soon as we hang up, and I'm sure not going to do anything like that towards Drew. But we just are at a, a decision point in history, and um, Drew, would it be right to say that we're both praying that our leadership could be more gracious and that we could turn down the the temperature in the room in our denomination? Oh, our leadership, our our factions, it's okay. Very okay. good. Well, Drew, um, I before we started recording, you know what? Let's um, let's go ahead and uh, stop the recording here. But I I started with a prayer, and then I would have you 
let's just me and you. I'd have you pray over us. Uh, but we're we're gonna go ahead and cut the feed here. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for our conversation. God bless you, and uh, we both hope that you will engage in hard conversations with a, a heart of peace.